is waiting on fries. That you don't get it. You don't. What do you mean you don't get waiting on fries? Hopefully the customer never hears waiting on fries. But all this time on the entree and it's perfectly executed, and then you're it's like, ready Fuck, to go. I forgot to fire the fries. I just always use that when I forgot to put somebody's order in, and I was like, hey, I'm just waiting on the fries. It's gonna be two more minutes. Realistically, I come back 10 minutes with the food. Exactly. <laughs> they just know that their food's not there in the service, so they're still waiting on fries. I guess we're just waiting on fries. <laughs> guys, it's good to uh, good to see you guys again. Yeah, and guess what time it is? Oktoberfest. No, it's not. 11.59 a.m. I love what? it. I, You know what? We checked out. We were going to talk some Oktoberfest stuff, Noom said, and I, like, I Googled to do some full-on research, so I'm not just a big dummy out here, and Google said, canceled. Damn. Cancel culture continues, baby. <laughs> well, but at least we can we can embrace the spirit of Oktoberfest and just talk about some beers. How can they just cancel Oktoberfest? It's like hey, nobody wants to be drinking each other's faces and getting the COVID disease all in them. And uh, there's a big party where everyone's spilling beers and yeah, siggy soggy, siggy soggy. So the actual boys. party is canceled, not the beer itself. No, that like continues. You can still yeah. brew Oktoberfest beers. Yeah, yes. you could still be brewing Oktoberfest beers. That's because allowed. you know, actually, they probably started brewing the Oktoberfest beers in March before this all happened. This is true. And then they come, because that's what Oktoberfest is. They brew, it's a Marzen. They, well, at least oh, in Germany. It's a, Marzen, oh, it's a celebratory. Right? It's a Marzen, yep. which means they brew it in March, and then it sits over the summer. And, I love then it. and then it comes out in October, and that's the, the Oktoberfest is the breaking open of all the... The kegs. At least He's dropping the, dropping some real yeah, at facts At least in the on you. traditional uh, Oktoberfest beers. After every break, in we my make head. American ones that are not at all like that. But we we well us at Diner we make a Marzen. Right. It's well, quite a delicious yeah. Marzen. Yeah. But there's the American Oktoberfest that most people like. Sam Adams Oktoberfest yeah. is not traditional Oktoberfest. Uh. So in wanting to talk Blame about beers, beer. there's like there's just so many different pieces of beers, and I, I don't think we should go too deep into beers. Have because you seen the Oktoberfest IPA? I have not. No, is that a good Thank combination? God. Have no. you had no, this? No, I've never seen one. Oh, oh. <laughs> I thought that was a real thing. I was like, what? No, but I was I read this this article. I don't know if you saw on punchdrink.com, and they were they were talking Educated. about all the different styles of IPA and how the IPA is developed and stuff like that. And there's all, you know, we have. Session IPA and all day IPAs and the New England uh, IPA, New England IPA, the Imperial IPA, sour the double IPAs, IPA. the sour brood, IPA, the brood IPA was out for like a hot minute and then <laughs> it tasted terrible, so it went away. As but. we run out of different things to do, we start combining different types of the flavors IPA. and malts, and we're going crazy over here. Just trying to develop something new. Lactose. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, lactose true. seems to be a popular added ingredient in beers nowadays. We just carried some. A pumpkin milkshake IPA. That Was sounds super, unbelievably a pump, heavy. A pumpkin coffee milkshake IPA. Central Waters. Mm. It's actually really good, and it tasted exactly what it sounded like. Seriously? It was a cool can. The can was pretty cool. It was like, it looked like... Like the old Starbucks school milkshake. Cup. Oh, okay, okay. And uh. it said, so Wendy was in, they made it look like Wendy was the name of the person that ordered the pumpkin's <laughs> coffee. Uh, so I it was see. like Wendy written on the can... With a coffee cup, and yeah, it was like, yeah, checked yeah. off pumpkin, whatever. That's awesome. It, it was a pumpkin coffee milkshake IPA, and it tasted exactly what you're thinking it tasted like. That's clever marketing that matches the product, and that's Yeah, like and we only execution. the only reason we got there is because we rotated through so many pumpkin cans, and they, every time it just sold out, and I couldn't get more of, you know, whatever it was, yeah. starting with pumpkin, and then, you know, whatever we switched to, Cambridge Great Pumpkin Ale, and... 
I think there was a shipyard smash pumpkin in there. And then eventually I was like, you have any cans left? <laughs> like we have this Wendy pumpkin milkshake IPA left. And I was like, all right, let's all sign right. me up. Let's run Saddle that through. It, it sold pretty well. What What's your favorite pumpkin beer after this year? After this year's run? Uh, summer ale. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But, so but, now, but now gun to your head. If you had to pick a pumpkin beer, what would you pick? If I had to pick a pumpkin beer? You had beer? to pick a pumpkin beer. And do I have to drink it or just give it to somebody? No, no. no. This is for you to drink. For me to drink? Yes. Ugh. Gun the to your shipyard head. pumpkin was always a very yeah. light pumpkin. Pum- it was yeah. like doable. Pumpkin was a good one. The southern nah, tier pumpkin. I don't know. The yeah, smash pumpkin. Is nice and, pumpkin it's nice taste. and light. The shipyard okay. smash pumpkin. Nice and light. Uh, so, like, there's other issues that exist out here. There's obviously an influx of way too many pumpkin beers always during this time period. I can't wait until that falls off. But I recently went out to a newish, trendy spot where I just, you know, you look at the menu and it doesn't really tell you all the beers. So I just told the waitress, I said, I just don't want anything hoppy. Just like, I, I just want a lager. You have a lager up there or something like very comparable. Um, and she came back and brought me an American Pale Ale. And I was just like... This is opposite. This, this is not like, what I asked This for. is actually not at all what I wanted <laughs> by any means. Like, I, I would have had you, a Guinness before that, you did know? Did you drink it or did you, like, make a good new No, I drank it because the place was busy and I'm, I'm in the industry, so I'm not a dick. I'm just like, why do we not teach the people that are selling the products a little bit more and pay a little bit more attention to that type of detail? And I will say this. As a younger guy in the business, especially at the time, the Yard House, one of the best oiled machines that I've ever worked at. As the motor? opposite drives by. <laughs> he talked about a well-oiled machine over here, somebody with a cracked off exhaust fly down Division Street. <laughs> Yard House was one of the most well-oiled machines that I ever worked at, and they really had a great educational system and program for everybody that worked there, whether you were behind the bar or not. And the beer breakdown must have been like 27 pages of information. They had like 150 beers on tap or something. Completely. And it was breaking everything down from the lightest of the beers to the darker of the beers to the hops to the ambers to every different piece of the puzzle. So when somebody said, I want this or this, you could say, well, this is very close to that. Do you want to give it a taste? You can bring a little sample over. That was an ounce or so of a pour. And that really wound up getting people on board to trying new things that they didn't know they liked before. Or you could say, hey, Nooms, what do you normally drink when you go out to the bar? What kind of beer do you like? So me personally, I like IPAs. But what you just said is exactly how I start conversations when people come into the bar now. I say, what do you typically like to drink? And then from there, I can guide them through our menu and offer them a couple of tastes. And and they might not know the categories. And you could say, they they might go, oh, I like Blue Moon. You could go, wow, we have this beautiful Hefeweizen right now. And you might actually like that as well. If somebody said they like Blue Moon, I would say, well, we have this beautiful sponge brew pineapple pant, which is a fruited wheat beer with a lot of mango and pineapple. And you'll probably be into it. Very specific. Yeah. And it's it's there for them. This guy's getting all fancy with his words all of a sudden. These words are getting big here. (laughs) But that's the thing is that it's not that hard to teach the spectrum of beers in most places, considering most places maybe have about six taps, seven taps, eight taps most, unless you're going to somewhere that's actually like a craft beer spot. Just how many taps do you have up there? It's plus 10, right? Right right now or in real life? In real life. 20. There's 20 up 20. on that. We That's actually had a conversation. So we opened, we opened America. We put 20. We had 12 in New Rochelle originally. And we thought 20, oh, we're going to have a bunch of beers, et cetera. Um, but I think that's wrong. I think, 
Uh, I think it's too many, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> 20 be, is a lot. 20 I, is a lot. I think it's too many. It was ambitious. No, but I think in the trend at the time was, you know, let's have as many beers and have yeah. this selection of beers, et cetera. Um, I think we're going to, I don't think, in while we're building this new one, we're going back down to 12. Yeah. Even in the bigger store, just so we could focus on, instead of having a bunch of beers, having the right 12 beers yep. and then keeping them as fresh as possible. It's much much easier to manage 12 barrels than it is to manage 20 barrels, and I know we can put 12 on there and run through it and have everything in in and out in and out within a week, and we don't have to have a keg sitting there for two three weeks, starting to not be as favorable as it is when you first tap it. Correct. So I think that's more that became more important than having the the choices. And yeah. that's in the interest of quality control then in that aspect, right? Yeah. Absolutely. If you're getting a tap, if you're getting a draft beer, the you want it to be as fresh as possible. Yeah. You have a little more play with the can because it can hold better. And when you open the can, you're essentially tapping a, tapping your beer, and you drink it right then. But when, I mean, if you go, I'm sure you've been to a bar and had a draft poured for, poured for you that the keg has been sitting there for three weeks, four weeks, etc. And it just tastes like shit. You can I'd, taste the difference. I'd be quite skeptical of any bar selling pumpkin beers right now as they like, there's a possibility that it could be last year's keg if they didn't get taken back, no? Well, not this year. There was like a shortage of pumpkin beer. So oh. they went in and out pretty quick. Underproduced. On Underproduced, which I'm so glad because it's been <laughs> overproduced for so many years where yeah. exactly what you said will happen. Um, but this year I feel like we ran probably, you know, COVID, right? It's probably had to do with that when we produced less, et cetera, yeah. and get in and out of the season. Um, but I'm okay with it. Let's talk to guys that... The only problem is that winter beers suck. I don't... I will argue you. But let's talk to the guys Outside that stouts. don't maybe know as much about a, a beer program. And say they have eight taps. And this is maybe a manager or an owner or whoever's overseeing this program. Let's talk to them about formulating an even distribution of these taps to appease the people, right? There is some type of what formula. what to put on tap? Well, not what, exactly what to put what on tap. What types of beers but, to have on tap if you're limited to eight yeah, We're going into I the mean, winter. You got to look up the, you, I think you look up the market and see the market spread of like what do people drink and what what is in the market. So if you see 40% of people drink IPAs, then 40% of your draft should probably be some form of IPA. And you just kind of mirror the. Which is what we see. Or I would say like 25% because you want to be below what the average market spread is so you run through it faster. Let's say this. You've got eight taps to make things easy, right? Yeah. You've got eight taps. Yeah. You're dedicating four of those lines to IPAs? No, but that would be 50%. That's 50%. Thanks for the math test. <laughs> uh, you're dedicating <laughs> three of those lines to IPAs. Two. two. <laughs> you're dedicating two of those lines to IPAs. Cool. Yeah. One's going to be maybe sessionable, and one might be super hops or somewhere in between. Yeah, you probably go an imperial and then a, a light one or a hazy. And I, think the, I think the hazy and the, and the light IPAs are interchangeable. And then like you don't have to have both of them on all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. And then you just supplement what you don't have on tap with a can, like with a solid can. So now we've satisfied two lines here yeah. on our eight-line program right. that we have. Because that's 25%. Got it. You keep up with the numbers here as we continue, because clearly that's yep. not my area of so if expertise. You have eight, so I would go. I mean, there's no, there's no hard rule for this. You got to do what's right for 
agree, but well, let's uh, let's soft break like something together. If you're a together. super hipster bar in Brooklyn, <laughs> you should have seven IPAs and and no. one wheat beer. You know, no. <laughs> if you're a super hipster bar in Brooklyn, you're gonna have like four IPAs, two sours, two ciders. Yeah, it's probably better. That was that was actually <laughs> more. Accurate. I was being dramatic. Uh, that's that that's a very accurate. That's line that's Williamsburg. <laughs> uh, Nooms will set up your whole tap program for easy two hundred bucks, guys. Uh, but no, so when we I said seven two of these, IPAs, I meant like. You know, sour IPA, one of every style. <laughs> we have two yes. of these as IPAs here now. You said one would probably be Imperial. Don't one put a Saison. Let's yeah, oh, skip whoa. that completely. Take a Saison right out Why? of the dry Why? Because no one drinks it. Yeah, it's hundred percent. That's not true. No, no, it's not. People no one drink it, but not no enough people drink it for it to be on a draft line. The saison is better out of in a, a can. In a can, okay. Because the people okay. will enjoy it better. Yeah. And if you get a half barrel of saison, I promise it'll take a month for Correct. you to pour through it. <laughs> Correct. Right? I can because attest to that. You, I, I don't. Dis- I I disagree with that. I disagree with that. You think you pour through a saison in a month? In a, a half month? barrel? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, depends on where you're pouring it. I guess. I think that's what matters. I, I, w- I want to see the product mix numbers on this. <laughs> um, all right, so two IPAs essentially skip the saison. I'm with that. A cider has to go on. I think you need at least two ciders because that's your gluten free option for beer drinks. So, if you have eight draft lines, you can't put two ciders. No, on. one cider. You could put one cider on because we still have more to go through yeah. as far as the beers you go. You can't put twenty five percent on a five percent market share item. Now you opt as an owner or manager here to have a Bud Light or a Coors Light option on there. I think most places at this point are kind of getting away from that. There's, I, it I exists per, though. I personally, they do exist. And again, it depends on, you got to know your demographic and who's coming in there. You know, if you're, if you're a bro bar, mm-hmm. you probably, you know, half. If you're doing football specials, you need something to no, compensate no, for that. No, I know no, you do it with the Rolling Rocks. It, you can do like football said, specials you with be, like you know, you're a, a grow bar beer. or you like a restaurant. You know, but so we we do two IPAs here. We have One cider. a cider. A cider. Now we have how we many taps a, left? Dooms. Five. Five. We got to do a stout. Got there. it. And then we have to have what, a stout. What right? time of year are we in? We're go, we're in this time of year right this now. This time. So yeah, you, right, have to, yeah. you gotta put a stout. You gotta put a stout or a porter. In the summer, you don't need the stout in a porter. No. You can do without it and have a, a viable can option. Okay, yeah, as long yeah. as you have the can option. Yeah. You always have to offset with a can yeah. what you don't put on the draft. So we put the stout in also. That yeah. brings us to how many now? Four. We got four left. Four left. You need four down, four to go. You need a wheat? You need to have a wheat. Yeah. That's your Blue Moon, essentially, or yeah. comparable. Yeah. Or, right? You know, or comparable. Yeah. <laughs> Or, or <laughs> and you need and you need we, to have some type I, I of water like on it or an ale. White is very solid. Yeah. What you was know, it? Class it up a little bit. What was it? Allagash white ale. Sure. Yeah. All right. You drop drop names if you and want. Then you yeah. Can, and then you can offset with a flavored wheat beer in the, in your fridge. Cool. Uh, yeah. Yep. Right. So Love it. Eat, sure. Get your fruited you wheat know? beer out there. Sure. And then that leaves us with how many left now? Three. We have three left. Three left. What do you do? Well, this type of year, you look yes. for an Oktoberfest, the yeah, Marzen or something. Yeah. Gotcha. You're Maybe seasonal. Seasonal. October is a big seasonal time. Yeah. So you you can go too seasonal in this in this time. Too seasonal. Because you're gonna go pumpkin on Oktoberfest. Yeah. That leaves you with one left. One left. <laughs> <laughs> so you, do, you know, do everything, do whatever you want on that one. So with that said, hold on though. What's your regular everyday drink though for the people? Like, what is that going to be? That's you gotta, what you need. You gotta, it, based for me, on what, it's Blue Point. Based on what we just threw on there, you have to do a lager. Yeah, and for me, that's the Blue Point Toast lager, and that's my go-to for any okay. drinking scenario you're, you're there is. You're pressed because you have to choose between a Pilsner or a, or, or a, uh, a maltier lager. Oh, I'm slighted. I'm not a Pilsner you know? guy. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I, I, you have to essentially make sure that when you're 
fulfilling these taps here that you have a little bit of something for everybody. That's why I think 12 is the right number. It might be a little everything. bit too too yeah. too yeah. few. I mean, but if you're in a small place, eight's probably you know it depends on the size. If you yeah. if you only see thirty people, you, you shouldn't. The less is better because you run through it that much faster. So circle back in the new location of Smokehouse that's currently being built right now as we speak. We're gonna do twelve. There's going to be twelve, and that's cutting down from twenty. And then you'll have a cam program as well, though, so that yeah winds up making up for any of those taps that are yeah, lost. Anything we can't get on the tap will offset with a with a can. And those would be more custom things that you don't see as often. Maybe it's like an oatmeal or maybe a brown. Yeah, and I'm I'm very pro. If I don't think I'm gonna move, if I don't think I'm gonna pour a keg in a week, it's going in a can. You're not gonna pour the keg in the week. It's going in the can. Good rule to live by. I don't by. want any yeah. kegs taking up real estate for more more than a week, two weeks tops. If it's like a high end, because some of the stuff is expensive, and you're gonna put on a high end, you're just not gonna just pour gonna it in sit a week. There, you know, yeah. but but uh, week, two weeks. If you're if the keg is there for more than two weeks. Your, your demographic's not drinking it. All right, fair enough. And I think we need to get a little bit of a, a better experience. And I know, Nooms, you were just very forward with the uh, cider talk over here. And I, I think that maybe we should open up our horizons to learning a little bit more about what goes on behind the, the, the cider world and whatnot. We could definitely get into some ciders. Ciders are an interesting topic, and there's a lot more out there than a lot of people think, especially with, like, uh, Angry Orchard and Docs and Mackenzie's. That's typically what you see, but... Oh, don't act like you know about ciders. <laughs> we're lucky and we're fortunate enough to have Chris Sheldon from Diner Bruco sitting with us today right now. Hey, dude. What's up, boys? How you doing? You got to tell us about things. We just covered some IPA <laughs> stuff and all the different types of super hoppy beers and less hoppy beers and what people might actually want while they're sitting at a table. You know some of that stuff too. Sure. But we're literally sitting here in the middle of Diner Bruco at this very moment, which is a beautiful spot. It it feels a little dinerish also. It's definitely got that clean diner aesthetic. I can't say that was intentional, so <laughs> I guess why? we achieved our goal. Just why open up a little brewery spot slash cidery slash I I don't know what even is this tell us Uh, this is my uh, shrine for craft beverage my friend so the uh, idea behind this being that this is our tap room for our direct manufacturer here in uh, New Rochelle New York but we make all the stuff in Mount Vernon we're Westchester based so we're making beer cider selling New York State products like New York State wine kombucha uh, focusing on guest drafts and guest products in our to-go fridge that are from all over the place, but mostly Westchester-based as well. Um, yeah, this is kind of like our spot to just get down with the people, uh, form community, and introduce people to craft beverage that's being made right here in Westchester. At what point, though, are you just like, I know how to make beers and ciders, and this is where I'm going into <laughs> As a friend of mine says, um, you know, I won't claim to be uh, the top expert in anything, but I do know a little bit about a little bit. So, you know, I've been at this for about 12 years. So you're always learning. 12 years. When you stop learning, you die, as we all know. And I don't plan on stopping learning anytime soon. So it's always an improvement process. But uh, I'd say it's that old adage you hear, you know, 10,000 hours to become an expert. At, at what point were you sipping beers and ciders on your own? And mm-hmm. you said, I really just, I want to make these things. I want to make them myself. It was more of a progression. You know, uh, I'd say in that progression, it started as a hobby. Then that hobby started dangerously taking over all of my waking hours that weren't devoted to my working career. 
And then I started taking out all the physical space in my apartment and all the closets that had formerly been for clothes and shoes were getting donated to brewing projects and fermenting projects. Then I was starting to use the bathrooms. I was down in Brooklyn at the time. The tub started to fill up. My girlfriend was really upset. You know, my parents' basement was full of carboys and fermenters. And my dad and my mom were like, you got to take this pro or get the fuck out of the house. (laughs) (laughs) So we started looking for a warehouse. And, you know, I'm joking about that. But honestly, as the progression went, my passion took over my life and it became something that I knew I wanted to do. Even though I was working a couple of jobs on the side, I was teaching people how to brew, cider make, wine make over at the Westchester Homebrew Emporium. I was working for a distillery, a New York State Farm distillery, learning how to make brandy and bourbon at the time too. And then my professional career, I was like an SEM coordinator, which was uh, search engine marketing, you know, the ads at the top of Google. (laughs) So I was working for a uh, small advertising firm, had like seven locations in North America, and doing all that, probably pulling like 60, 70 hours a week on the books and uh, just trying to make my dream happen while saving enough money to open up the business. So kind of the progression of it was passion and uh, let's call it like capital equity buildup were there at the same time. And then there was this perfect moment in time in 2016 where I knew I wanted to do this with my life had enough of a nut saved up where I could actually invest in myself as a business. And uh, thankfully, um, and to this day, sometimes I rue it. Sometimes it's the best decision I ever made. It depends on the day. I took the leap and uh, decided to form the company. And we found a little manufacturing spot in Mount Vernon. Um, It took me two more years on top of that since 2017 when we got legal to open our tap room here in New Rochelle so we could do retail sales direct to consumer. And uh, yeah, that's kind of been the progression all up till uh, November 2019 when we opened this spot and then four months of kind of like meteoric takeoff and then COVID. (laughs) So a little slowdown, a shutdown for a couple of months and hopefully a sort of resilient bounce back that we're sort of still in the middle of right now trying to figure it out on a daily basis. I like how you said sometimes you rue it and sometimes you really enjoy it because I have the same thing. I'll wake up one day, I'm like, this is this it. And then some days I'm just like... Why yep. do I do this? Yep. Where's my Where's my PTO and health benefits? <laughs> yeah. and this is uh, everybody I, else. I feel you. This is today is uh, day number eight running without a break. So I'm definitely <laughs> looking forward to. Um, I'm thinking I'll give myself this Wednesday. We'll see about that though. We'll see what go. fires need to be put out come Wednesday. So so tell me, I've always wondered. Obviously, we've known each other for a little while and we've been yep. drinking and stuff. But I never asked you, and I've always wondered. And it's a good time to do it. Where did, where did the name come from, Diner Brew? What does it mean? Oh, it's based on the Mirage off North Ave. Okay. So if you guys remember, before Iona built that dorm on North Ave, that was, and now actually, funnily enough, the owners of the Mirage rent the bottom of the dorm and host the Mirage Cafe. Yeah, but it's um, not the same at all. In the footprint that was formerly the Mirage Diner. The Mirage Diner and the Thruway Diner growing up were the two spots around here and the Nautilus to an extent, you know, the BLD, all the, yep. all the places on Route 1 were where when we were out partying at night before we were able to come and patronize your establishment, <laughs> uh, you know, we'd be <laughs> out go to the around diner. here, uh, certain parks that I won't mention, and then we'd uh, hit up the diners at like, you know, midnight, one o'clock, whatever, and it was disco fries and the whole town would be there, like literally everyone our age, it would be like, if you were 15 to 19 or 20, whatever it was, you were going to show up at the diner at like one o'clock. And it just had this whole family vibe. Like it wasn't expensive. We could all afford it. 
Um, I don't know how much food. family vibe was in there. One of the more. <laughs> Yo, it was it was crazy. It was you'd show vibe. up like was, back in the day. Vibe. You'd show up at you know midnight, and you'd see everyone from your class, yep. and it was just crazy. Um, so, anyways, that that always stuck with me and my buds, and we had a bunch of projects under the diner moniker. Um, one of which was Diner Recording Co. Because back in the day, that's why I was commenting on your uh, your high end mics. We we used to have a mixer and throw down. We'd like you know do live band recordings and stuff like that. But um, Diner has always been this sort of ethos that the friend group had. And so when me and another one of my current partners started homebrewing um, post college, where we had both independently uh, learned how to homebrew and then brought it back to New Rochelle post college. Uh, we're brewing in his dad's basement. We took up the name Diner Brew Co. Uh, in honor of that sort of like, kind of like the good old days, you know, the high school days when we didn't have shit to worry about, just summer jobs and then going and partying, you know? With deciding that now you've, you've moved out, or you didn't even move out, you got kicked out of the house at home with all of the tubs just... You know, filled with all the shit that you need to brew things. Sure. How many of those brews that you first start doing are just like complete utter failures as you're like learning and you're trying to figure out where things went wrong? And are you taking, are you keeping journal books and log books of, of course, how you did things of and how long you had them brewing for? You know, whatever the steps in the brewing process are. Yeah, no, everything is carefully cataloged and every failure is carefully cataloged. Every success is also carefully cataloged. But really, um, my style's kind of like nebulous uh, as a manufacturer. I know what has worked in the past and I know what hasn't. I'm always writing these details down along the way, but once you get to a certain extent of knowledge base, you kind of know what's gonna work um, and what's not just based on the amalgamation of knowledge and failures and repeated successes that you've had in the past. So nowadays, I have my recipes that are my standard recipes and those, I think it's someone who is unable to see themselves truly who can't look at their failures as leading to their successes. You got to fail a million times. You got to be trying stuff that people tell you you're crazy. You're out there. What the fuck are you even attempting? This isn't by the rule book in order to, and then there's also as an aside from that, you got to know the rules to break the rules too. But I like to kind of throw the rule book out the window now, try stuff and fail and see what happens because each time you do, you get a little bit closer to that end goal, which is that product that may not be that perfect perfection. Cause is there perfection out there? Is there like that objective fucking reality of like, Oh, this is perfect, but it might be something that I'm so fucking proud of that relatively it's perfect in the way that people perceive it or whatever it is. And a good example of that is, uh, right now I'm playing around with, uh, changing the way I do bread yeast starters. So I was talking to Anum earlier about this. I'm trying to use spent cider yeast to do a starter um, rather than doing a lacto kind of like inoculated sourdough starter. Um, and right now it's been a massive failure. <laughs> I have not managed to get it to take up the way that, uh, you know, my classic sourdough starters will do in the course of five to seven days. I'm trying to, or, you know, even following certain regimens even quicker than that. You can get a starter going in like four or five days. You Before know? you nerd out on us too sure, hard. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's rain it back real yeah, quick. Right. Too, for <laughs> Sorry, everybody that has no idea so, how anyways, beers get made. Wait, you got to You got to fail. How do you we start? Fail. How do we start? How do you make, <laughs> how do you start making the beer from scratch? What happens? Well, oh. Before we get into how you start making beer, originally you started just producing ciders. We what did. Led you, what led you to the 
the decision to start making beers as well. So by technical training, I guess I know how to, just from being at the homebrew emporium, learning how to homebrew in college, learning how to home cider make, all that sort of stuff. Uh, by training, I know how to do winemaking because that's what cider making is. And that's my number one passion in the alcohol making world. I've been trained as a distiller, trained as a brewer. So all those things are in my repertoire, but my big passion is cider making because growing up here in New York state, we are the apple state. It's, and I have some family history in France too, where cider making is also really, really revered. And it's one of their big products, one of their big output products in Normandy and Brittany. Um, so I got really passionate about that because my family used to make brandies out of uh, fermented hard ciders. So I wanted to learn how to make brandy. I wanted to make hard cider. That's where my love in the alcohol making world was really focused. Um, having all that other background knowledge, I decided to start as a cidery because it's where I really saw myself as a maker. What was, um, the, what was the first cider you wanted to bring to market? My Huguenot cider. It's my wild fermented. I've basically captured a yeast strain out there in the wild and had it lab isolated, sequenced, and understand it in a uh, isolated um, place so that I can use it to ferment out uh, a cider where I get repeatable, uh, repeatable results every time. And that's a really great culture, and it creates a really dry, um, lightly tart, beautiful cider that we named after the mascot of the town, New Rochelle. Uh, little known fact about them is that they were uh, orchardists as well, and that there are three pears and a bunch of apples and berries that come from New Rochelle specifically um, that were cultivated by the Huguenots. So it's kind of a nod to them. But uh, started as a cider maker because of all that history, passion for it, knew how to brew, knew how to distill at the time, even when we got legal, and saw quickly um, out of practicality that cider is a very niche market. It's awesome when you have a shop like Justin's where they have a dedicated cider tap and you can get on those places, but it's far and few between where you're going to see dedicated cider taps. Being that I had the knowledge to brew and in New York State, there's a little caveat with the brewing license that you can make as much cider as you want to so you don't have to strictly be a brewer or a cider maker under that license you can make both so we decided to become more commoditizable have a product that was going to hit more of a customer base than just like call it the three to five percent that strictly drinks cider now we're capturing that customer base and we're capturing the beer customer base which is far greater and uh we're able to make a great product on both sides and we have captive audiences on both sides. So with the, uh, and take us back again, somebody that doesn't really know. Yeah. Sure. Cider. You, people love ciders. They come into the bars. They talk to me and they say, what ciders do you have? Usually we don't have that many. For whatever mm-hmm. reason it is, but people still love ciders no matter what. Now, how do you, is it faster to make a cider than it is a beer? Way slower. Really? Way more expensive too. It's like winemaking, you know, good wine and good cider should be made when the apples and the grapes are freshest, which is now in the fall. You're picking them, you're harvesting them when they're ripe. Their bricks levels, their sugar levels are super intense at that point. And that's when you crush and press. That's when you make your juice. That's when you ferment. But good wine needs to age for a while. And good cider does too. My ciders are generally gonna see at least a month and a half to two months, either in barrel or stainless. Whereas, and that's on the short side, um, a beer, we can be flipping a fresh beer in less than 14 days. Um, so in terms of real estate, cider's far more expensive to make. In terms of base input, you can extract way more sugar for cheaper out of grain than you can out of an apple. Um, you know, in terms of getting fresh pressed bulk 
uh, raw cider that you're going to ferment and turn into alcoholic stuff. It's just a, uh, a tougher product to work with. Now, the brewing process in the hot side of things, when you're boiling down and you're mashing the grains and everything, very physical process and difficult to do. Whereas when you're making a wine, when starting with bulk pressed juice, you're just essentially pitching yeast, handling the cellaring process, doing all the cold side of things. But when people ask me which is harder, which is, you know, more difficult, um, I think they're both equally difficult because brewers don't often focus on the agricultural side of it. Whereas on the cider side of it, mostly, um, and there are exceptions like myself where we're working with farms and getting our juice down here to our fermentation areas and then starting with that product. But I'd say about 75 to 80 percent of the cideries out there are working farms where they're actually doing the growing. They're making sure they're managing their orchards. They're getting the fruit, harvesting the fruit, crushing and pressing the fruit. So it becomes a equivalent exchange. They're different processes, but they're equally as different and different, equally as difficult in different ways. So is there, there's grapes in every cider? Is that a rule? Just apples, apples. Um, now some ciders, are mixed with grapes. Well, I, I miss. I just. I missed that part. What do you want from? What do you want from me? I, we were talking about the grapes being the freshest. Where did you get grapes? Where wine, just, wine, buddy, wine. We're Sorry, just talking about the grapes being the freshest. Yeah, and I was. He's I was a bartender, not a brewer. Wine yeah, it's all good. So yeah, educate me. I'm all right. I'm all right. So you got uh, grapes are wines, obviously, mm-hmm. and then uh, apples are uh, ciders, and they're both considered. by the government to be wines, which is all just a technical uh, way for them to create categories to tax manufacturers like myself and make sure that certain things are made to certain alcohol percentages and certain labels only say certain things. It's all a pay to play kind of like sort of dealio, but they're all wines, but grapes are made with, uh, wine is made with grapes and apples are uh, making ciders so that they have a category for it. Beer, malt, uh, so grain, and uh, that's the kind of distinctions right there so when you say that there's specific times that things are the freshest and the sweetest are you every time that you get a batch of i mean are you taking in a batch of apples at some point chris is literally driving upstate to go pick a bunch we do i do a bunch of hand pressing myself so i'm going up i'm going and gathering apples uh crushing pressing juicing fermenting that's on a small batch sort of side we do maybe a maximum of i want to say maybe 25 to 50 barrels that way every year. But um, most- do you, take, do you take the bricks machine with you when you're up there? Yeah. To test the apples right there on the, on yeah, the spot? Yeah, it's an easy little thing. It's a little tool called a refractometer. It's just like a pencil shape and you just drop a little juice on it. it shows you how sweet it is, essentially. Which we do actually use in the bar when we're making cocktails as well. Do you really? Um, in syrups, if you want to make getting, sure that things- Getting exact on that, huh? On Correct. those cocktails. Well, I'm not specifically, but in many times, but- <laughs> behind the bars when you're making these cocktails where things tend to change and alter throughout time, you mm-hmm. have to kind of bring them back to where they should be. Yeah. Interesting. So you have a, a set sugar level that you're trying to aim for with every cocktail. Sure. And that way each bartender may not know the rules, but if they can look at a instruction booklet and say, all right, that matches that, that batch is good. Well, well yeah. I mean, you, you don't want to teach everybody all the tricks yeah. though. Right? <laughs> I see, I see. You got to keep right. some secrets. That's right. We gotta keep you know, cons- we gotta keep consistency, you know? That's true. You know, I think about it kind of differently on my side, and there was this great brewer who had this shtick, um, Chris Sheehan, who used to brew for Gunhill Brewing, and he wrote the Void of Light recipe, and he said to me and a mentor once, I'll give you the Void of-. He came into our shop in Westchester Homebrew Emporium, and I was talking to him about how much I love the beer, and he just goes, I'll give you the recipe. I guarantee you that you'll do a great job on it, but it's gonna be different than mine. And like, I kind of realized in that moment that like, 
everyone does have their different style. Everyone's got a different system. Everyone has different capabilities and capacities. So I could be working with his recipe and do it completely differently. And that's kind of cool. So I'm, I'm pretty free with my stuff. Like if you were to ask me if for any, I'll give it to you right now, you know, and uh, I doubt that we're going to come up with the same thing, even if you're working with the same ingredients, same water, whatever it is, you know, that's so, kind of the same mentality yeah. that Mike has. Yeah. Mike's always says, cause you know, whenever anybody asks the restaurant, Oh, what are your secrets? What's yeah. your, I know you can't tell me. And okay, Mike's, I'll tell you I'll exactly how I make it. Yeah. It's, it's, no secrets. This is, this is what's in it. Yeah. You're not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's that certain, um, I think that, a lot of people waffle between whether or not it's that perfect recipe that sets them apart or that certain je ne sais quoi, that little thing, that spark that they bring to the table that's unique to them. I'm kind of on that side of things rather than like my recipe design is far greater than every other brewery that's ever, I'm the best in the world. That's not how I think of things. I'm like, I try and stay humble. I do the damn best that I can put out every single day. And I only put products out that I'm proud of and that I've worked on. And if people are happy with that, that's a reflection of my own kind of ethos and I think work ethic and hard work that I've put into a certain product. And that's a beautiful thing in and of itself. If we're going to talk about products that you're proud of real quick. We should talk about some of the stuff that we have on draft right now, because sure. there are a couple of cool things that we can mention specifically the uh, newest IPA, the newest addition to our menu, the dank tank. Why don't you tell right us on, why that's so right on. significant and special? Yeah, uh, that's a cool one. That's a harvest beer, which uh, just in brewer's terms means that it's a fresh hop IPA. Uh, so the hops for that beer were grown literally this year, picked uh, late September, thrown in a fresh beer that we did as a smash, little bit of uh, adjunct malt, but essentially just Pilsner malt so that the hops could shine on top of that. You taste the character of the hops, uh, balanced with those malts rather than a very malt forward recipe. And uh, I grew those hops myself. I grew them right here in New Rochelle. And That's you, the key point that you were yeah, skipping over. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So uh, <laughs> sorry about that. The, the exciting thing about it is that those hops were grown right here. They kind of represent the, I mean, it's a bullshitty term, but uh, the terroir of New Rochelle or whatever. And, you know, they're great hops. Standalone from where they grew, um, I'm just happy to have those hops and have access to them because they're newer varieties that New York has been growing. Growers here in New York used to supplement some of the flavor characteristics that we can't get with hops that won't grow in New York State. Um, you know, you talk about or hops that will grow in New York State, but they're protected by copyright by big hop farms. So like you talk about the character of a citra hop. Everyone knows citra. They know mosaic because they've got those great citrusy characters. They basically will make you think you're drinking something with grapefruit or lemon or whatever in it, lime. So in New York State, derivative hops that can make up for those flavors in a beer are hops like Triple Pearl and Tahoma and Cashmere, which all make it into our Dank Tank IPA. They help me supplement hops that grow well in our region, have flavor characteristics that mimic others that are either protected by copyright or don't grow well in our region. And three years ago, I had to have my eye on that in order to plant them to then have two years of no yields to get to the third year where the vine actually is giving me fruiting bodies and giving me those things back over your that your shoulder Jay. One for the, the uh the listener we do have a, one vine that i stole away from the production of the batch to hang on our to-go fridge so people can kind of see what a hop vine looks like a la you know oktoberfest when you go into one of the tents in munich and you see like hop vines strung everywhere along uh you know the the rafters of the tent so you get that vibe of like hey this is the harvest season we literally just pulled these things out of the ground that made it into your beer and 
three weeks later, well, with lagers, six weeks later, or a true Martin, you're talking nine months later, now you're drinking a beer that was made with our agricultural products. So that's kind of the cool thing about the Dang Tank is, yeah. yeah. That's an awesome selling, selling point, something to be able to explain to customers when they walk in. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you were just talking about using everything in New York and all that stuff. Right? Sure. How much of your, how hard is it to stay with the local products? Like how, using not, local ingredients? It's not at all. I, we have certain batches where I'm 100% New York State. The minimums are racking up every year based on the farm agriculture alcohol laws for every industry across the board, not just beer or so cider. you have to use a certain amount liquor of Liquor too, yes. You have to okay. use a certain percentage. I think this year we're up to 80%. I got to go check the percentages again, but far and above, my batches are usually above 90%. So I don't even pay attention to that because I know we're hitting the minimums. Uh, the only thing that bars that for any alcohol producer, whether or not it's distiller, brewer, whatever, um, is if we have literally crop failure. So the Department of Agriculture can weigh in on this and say, this was a massive crop failure year in New York State, and we're not going to hold you to those minimum percentages. You can buy your Weirman, you can be buying your Avangard malt, um, you can be working with uh, Yakima Valley hops instead of working with New York hop growers. But far and few between, I've had no problems sourcing not just vendors, because there's a ton of vendors out there, but excellent vendors who are making great malts in New York State and growing great hops in New York State. They are beautiful in the way that they represent their local regions of the state. We work with uh, the Lake Ontario region for malt. We work with the Hudson Valley region for our Pilsner malt. Beautiful Pilsner. Does have highest diastatic power, not to get too nerdy, but I'll just tell you, um, it has a higher protein content because of growing in New York State than most Pilsner malt you're gonna get from Belgium or Germany. So knowing that allows us as brewers to make adjustments on our brew days to work with that malt so that you get a comparable flavor to what you're used to when you use a traditional continental malt. Um, it's stuff like that, understanding the nuances of what can be done in New York State, making hop substitutions to get around those copyright laws, stuff like that, that keeps us not only um, within those parameters of the law, but I think it kind of also makes us more nimble as brewers. We have to write our recipes to hold up to what we were used to in our test batches where we're using malts from all over the world and figure out how to do it with the local ingredients that are available, readily available, but you have to be kind of nimble. You got to stay quick footed on it so that you can substitute where you need to and find someone who is making a quality product within the state boundaries to do it. But there's a ton of malsters. There's a ton of guys who are making malt. Uh, everything's available all the way down to Pilsner, all the way up to a roasted barley. So from the lightest of the light to the darkest of the dark malt. And then on the hop side of things, new varietals are coming out all the time to kind of offer new uh, options to brewers to, you know, get those flavors we're looking for and make sure that we're not stepping on any copyright toes or make sure that we can grow it in our state specifically because, you know, it's a plant just like anything else. It's going to have preferences in the place it grows. And yeah, we source from, we source sustainably from four hop farms, two malt uh, makers who are also connected on their side sourcing with the grain growers. And uh, additionally, with three different apple growers as well for the bulk of our products that we're turning into alcohol. So you have farms out there in New York that are focusing on hop genetics to create a specific flavor profile? Absolutely. And all of that, I got to throw out, really does come back to Cornell University is 
the bastion of all of this sort of movement other than on the legal side you know new york state's governors and the senate's office is pushing for this stuff cornell is the precursor to all this they're the ones who are leading pomology research which is just a fancy term for apple based and cider based research um viticulture and enology they always have been the finger lakes region is a great wine region in new york state especially for riesling um and a few other grape varietals and then uh, the North Fork obviously stands out as well. They've got extension schools all over New York State um, where growers and alcohol producers and people who are doing packaging of any sort of food product can rely on them for resources in uh, testing, whether or not it's soil testing or pH testing or stuff like that, or recommended resources for coming to scale and bringing your product to an economy of scale so that you can commoditize it and bring it out to the market. But they're really pushing the, the forefront of New York State grown, New York State manufactured, New York State sold. And that's awesome. Has COVID impacted the way that you wind up being able to source any ingredients or any of the businesses yeah, that you work actually, with? Has it made yeah, it harder? Yes. Um, the one thing that's really tough is we were planning on, so far we've been good on all of our agricultural inputs. God bless. And I'm going to knock on wood right now. But, um, and hopefully that stays the way that it is. But really our toughest time has been in finding cans. There's a can shortage right now going on. We've been all right with 16 ounce cans so far, but I've had it in no unclear terms from my vendors and my canner that when we go to do our cider this year, we were planning on doing a whole bulk of cider in 12 ounce cans. It's the preferred format for cider when you're doing package can to go. Um, 12 ounce cans are not available right now. So we're having to kind of pivot on a dime and figure out what we're gonna do about our packaging for that bulk product that we're making this year uh, for our cider inventory. Beer, we ought to be good. You know, like if we can continue keeping our uh, 16 ounces rolling, great. Um, that's where I want to be. That's the packaging format I want on the shelves when we get out to there to market and selling out of here. But the 12s are a little tougher. So we'll see where that all goes. So you would, pref you would prefer the ciders be in the smaller can? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, why? moving forward. Why is that? Because on my, I'll just say from my side on the retail side, I see better movement. We see better movement on sixteen ounce cans just from the value point for the guest that comes in. That's that's great to hear, honestly. And I will tell you this: I have heard it from multiple distributors that that's the packaging format that they would prefer to see us in to be able to get that sort of like um, call it high velocity sale. Yeah, it looks better in the fridge too. I think that's it. I think it's for grocery, honestly is and for a shop like yours where you're a restaurant and sort of like retail at the same time i could see the 16 ounce it works for us here 16 ounce is like a pretty good it's an even format where we catch as many consumers as we can with that but i think it's because distributors are really looking for grocery ready box store ready that sort of stuff yeah yeah continuing into the business side though of things uh, sure quickly i know we're we're yeah, yeah, getting short on time let's here check that quick the uh we're good. This this might be my last one. <laughs> you we opened up or we're brewing in Mount Vernon. Yep. And what led to the decision to come into New Rochelle with the showcase room? Oh, I mean, New Rochelle is my hometown. Uh, this is where I grew up. Um, I always wanted to open in New Rochelle. The real backstory to the whole thing is back in 2014, 2015, um, we started this homebrew club out of the New Rochelle Westchester Homebrew Emporium. Um, we had a great community going here anyways, and I really did want to open initially in New Rochelle. 
the issue for me at the time was not finding the right manufacturing facility. Um, now, things are kind of popping back up on the market. There's a lot more commercial spaces available now in New Rochelle than 2014, 2015. I guess business was good and people were hanging on to their leases. Um, you looked in the industrial zone down by like the highway or you look in the industrial zone down by the highway over here or off Webster, which are really our only I zones. And I need that as a manufacturer, I have to be in that zoning. Um, so I was looking around in those and there was nothing available. So I started widening my search. Um, unfortunately, I really did want to land here. And I had worked with the city of New Rochelle at that point to help push and bring new zoning laws uh, that would allow for this sort of thing. So I was hands on there too, working with one of our council people to really show what the law needed to be to line up with New York State Farm Brewing Law and let this happen. So in the background, they're working on that on the city side. Um, it ends up passing in 2016 or something through zoning and planning board ordinance. And that opens up the opportunity. But by that time, I had already found the spot in Mount Vernon and time is money. And I was just sitting, waiting to make this happen. I had already made the decision in 2016 to leave my job, make it happen. And I knew there wasn't much commercial industrial real estate available to me where I could make this manufacturing happen in New Row at the time. So I just pulled the trigger. I said, the space is right. The rent's right. It has all of the X, Y, Z through the list of the things that I need, you know, the bullshit like overhead doors and fire suppression system, all the kind of particulars that you look for as well. And we went for it. And I still to this day think that that was maybe a blessing in disguise that we had to come back to New Rochelle to open the tap room because that space down there in Mount Vernon is excellent for manufacturing. It basically, I found it and realized over time that it wasn't really a sustainable spot for retail anyways. So we ended up taking what was a plan to have a hybrid model there, do some retail, do some manufacturing, and just took it over with the manufacturing side of the business, added more tanks. Anum went on our, uh, our grand opening actually, so he got to party. see it <laughs> when we were uh, running like the halfway model. And it's really in a very industrial section of Mount Vernon. It's not too consumer facing, it's not too consumer friendly. You're on a dead end street next to a warehouse district, essentially. So, so this helps really sell the brand at the end of the day, having exactly. it here where people can see it firsthand. Exactly. And with that, I, where I'm sitting right now behind me is the fridge that's loaded with all of the Diner Brew Co. ciders and beers here. That's why I filled it the, up this morning. The packaging, <laughs> there we the go, packaging there we go. looks great and it's beautiful. And do you have words to maybe guys that are trying to break into the retail space? Is, is there a way to get these accounts or is there a technique yeah, maybe used well, to say, hey, I'm Chris Sheldon. I've got these beers. I want you to try some of these things out in your store. To say that very humbly, uh, every day is a, um, uh, a learning experience is not a joke. Like every day is a learning experience and you're constantly out there making connections. I've known Justin for a while and actually the Smokehouse in Mimarinic was our very first account. Um, so it's always, you're pu always pulling on our network. Everyone's always pulling on your network. And I think that if you're not out there every day, either learning something or making a connection with the person, um, you got to be doing something else because then you got to find ways to make that time that you're living and experiencing and creating valuable in the community around you. Uh, so I would say to anyone trying to break into retail, um, I was very fortunate. It's been a hard road, but we started as a strictly distributing kind of like hybrid model in Mount Vernon, but we were opening accounts all over the place. 
and then pulled back on that, opened this up, had to bring our volume of production to fulfill what we were doing out of here. So I really couldn't keep distributing out for a while. And then now we're kind of focusing on growing, keeping the production up to keep this fulfilled, our tap room fulfilled, but also making moves to make more so that we can get back out to the accounts that we had previously opened um, and kind of get back into, you know, places like Smokehouse, places like where we were at, you know, Noggin, Harlem Hops, uh, the Chico's Chains, Whole Foods, that sort of stuff. Um, now is the exercise in having sustainable uh, ground to stand on, which is kind of like our tap room, and then growing the brand sustainably, focusing on um, making sure that always, and this is the number one piece of advice I would say to anyone who is thinking of doing retail beer site or whatever, um, the liquid's got to be impeccable every time, but the packaging speaks just as highly. And you're not in uh, a vacuum. You're in a com highly competitive dog-eat-dog -dog industry where there are a million and one of every one of us. So for any alcohol manufacturer out there who has dreams to start up, just make sure your beverage is absolutely incredible and make sure that your efforts in branding that beverage are equally as incredible and have a foundation to stand on. It's tough to just run a distribution-based business from a small-scale manufacturer standpoint. If you're a large-scale manufacturer, absolutely, you can just go straight into distribution if you're making enough volume to really justify the cost per your unit and all that sort of stuff. But I think as a small-scale, local, community-based business, you really want to start with direct-to-consumer sales and then work out from there, which is the opposite of what we did. I had to learn that the hard way. I had to kind of run a failing business model for a while and take it on the chin and put more money into the business and revamp the way that we were directionally and kind of think to myself, how can we increase the margin take with what we're doing, give ourselves a good footing to stand on, and then go after the lower margin kind of uh, you know business, which is moving out outside of your consumer base and tapping into other people's consumer base. But it's a shared economy. So like when I work with Justin, I want to make sure that I'm giving you enough meat on the bone that you're living too. I'm getting my manufacturer's cut. You're getting your sales cut for taking my stuff. And the consumer gets it at a damn decent price still when it hits the market. And that is, those are the economics of it, which is a reality to what we're doing as well. We, got, we all got to be able to live, breathe, and eat in that shared economy of kind of like three-tier sales. Um, so yeah, those are the pieces of advice I would say. Just get your feet underneath you first, have a direct consumer market, then start moving out to accounts. We could get into that three-tiered economy that you just talked about <laughs> for a while and spend a lot of time talking about, especially how the last seven, eight months really threw, threw, ruffled the feathers of that, that whole system. But we know you got to go. Maybe we'll catch up with you in another I appreciate another, that, another episode yeah, down yeah. the road is this was definitely a little if you, if you got one more i can probably do one more and then i really got to run but all right you got one more i don't think we got a whole list of choose from <laughs> topics no no, no no don't go into the supply that whole thing that's like no i i guy. want the th the three-tier system to be honest with you because i'm like the <laughs> i'm the business mind guy i love this shit we could talk about the three we could talk about the system yeah. <laughs> 
No, it, we'll let you cut out of here. But at the end of the day, I do like what you just said because Justin's a firm believer in that as well, where you want to pass down the value to the consumer and not every guy thinks about that. And, you know, you think about all the different guys that you've worked with through your life. They're just trying to squeeze the consumer to the last dollar. Right. It, it's not a working model for longevity, I don't think. No, and I had to learn that the hard way, as Justin can tell you. He and I had conversations about it early on. You know, a lot of people, this is my last comment on that. A lot of people come to the market. You don't come to the market unless you're a dreamer as a manufacturer. It's the hardest fucking thing in the world to decide that you're going to give up your day job and really go after something that for most people is just a passion project up to that point in their life. So you're talking about a dreamer personality type and what dreamers don't do well. And I'm a dreamer and I've had to reconcile this in myself is they're not really pragmatists. Um, and that's necessary to being a dreamer. You don't really look at realities. You look at what could be and what you want to be. And uh, when you come to the market as a dreamer and a new manufacturer, my only words of caution would be is that keep dreaming and keep pushing those boundaries and looking at the world as you want to manifest it. But recognize that there is an existing structure of business around this. And it's a multi-billion dollar business and that you're not rewriting the rules and far and few between entities can rewrite the rules come to market with, let's call it a 50% higher price to retail or price to consumer than your average product, no matter how stellar your beverage is, no matter how stellar your widget is, whatever it is, call it like, uh, um, uh, I don't know, like uh, anything you would buy, like a corn cake or a, um, a bread, an artisanally made bread or like whatever it is, jellos, uh, yogurts, anyone out there who's looking to manufacture, learn your market and learn the business side of it from the top down, not just the craft side where, oh, I'm gonna be at farmer's markets or I'm gonna be uh, manufacturing amongst a small regional competition. Learn it from a national and international level too. Know who the big names are that are doing billions of dollars of business. Know where they're pricing their products on the shelf. Know who sells them in terms of their distributors because every food product has a distributor if they're big enough. and know what their costs of manufacturing are, and then start working from that, from the top down, rather than from the bottom up where you see your product being valued in your own eyes. Start seeing where other people value your product in their eyes. That's important. And, and furthermore, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but Sam Adams, it's a publicly traded company, of course, yep. and therefore they have to release records every quarter on how their business is doing, and typically they have a conference call. And for these guys that have all of these billions of dollars working, a little guy can wind up listening to that conference call and getting a handful of tidbits about where the market's going and where Sam Adams is seeing, you know, their different, uh, I was going to say spirits, their beers lift off in different areas hmm. and say, oh, you know, we're noticing our cider segment pick up. This is what we're planning to do in the future, blah, blah, blah. But also restaurant guys, they could go listen to the darting conference calls and see how COVID's affecting them and how they're getting around things. And there's just so much information out there that people could take in to help them succeed at the end of the day. And like you said, know your market that you're in. Yep. Um, I've never done that, actually. And that sounds really interesting. I, I didn't know it existed. Oh, you want to nerd out? You can sit there for an <laughs> I'll, hour. I'll, Jacob put you I'll, on some conference I'll, I'll check that out. You got to hit me up after this and we'll, I'll get your number from a Newman. We'll, we'll figure that out. But um, the, uh, the other thing you said was... Uh, really interesting because it, it's so important to 
understand that there is a collective atmosphere locally that you're part of too. And talking to guys like you're all restaurant folks at this point, I never in my life three years ago or five years ago would have considered myself a restaurant folk, but now I'm a restaurant folk. I, I am part of this industry and there's a collective kind of atmosphere that we're all in. You listen to it, you talk to your people and you see what the sell, what's selling. You're right. Like what's seasonal is the cider section doing better. You talk to distrib- distribution reps, even if they're not distributing you, you. I like to talk to people who work with distributors. We're self-represented, but I'm constantly trying to form relationships and constantly trying to trick, uh, pick their brains. Excuse me. So we got Same like thing. the uh, the uh, fermented malt beverage segment two years ago. People were just screaming about how well it was doing. Then you get into cider started really picking up a couple years ago, too. There was a taper up for rosé ciders, and that kind of tapered down a little bit. It was a quick market. But nowadays, you're looking at kombucha and hard seltzers are really doing extremely well. And this is all through this sort of collective atmosphere of information and people that I've tapped into that I get this sort of information. So what did we start doing this year? You know, we started doing Diner Booch, and that was part of my kind of growing and learning and uh, coming into a new product category that I see is growing and I want to be a part of, but not just that. It's part of my own self-education toward fermented beverages and booch is an interesting one. It can be alcoholic, it can be non-alcoholic. You can do it in a million different ways, different tea bases, all this sort of stuff. You can have it still, you can have it highly carbonated um, and it keeps me interested. It keeps me learning. It keeps me making something new. So one guy, and I'll leave you with this is the last thing I'll say. One guy I am very close with is Matt Froman out of uh, formerly Taconic, now, uh, you know, Spirits Lab. He is an excellent dude. I met him through the, uh, you know, the Hangover Takeover people <laughs> in Anum back in the day yeah. when Anum and I did a podcast. We were interviewed on Hangover. And uh, Matt once said to me, working for Taconic, as a manufacturer, you're going to fill two roles. And one is that you're going to be a producer. And one is that you're going to be an artist. And you want to find a way as you grow to make sure that you keep that producer role without losing your sight on being an artist. And he was so right. At first, it was all art. I got to basically, we were small enough that I could just experiment all the damn time. And I could throw out stuff that was like, oh, we just did a coffee cider with a, um, a cold brew style bean that was a natural bean. So they did a little roast on it and it had fruit on it. So you taste the coffee, you taste the cascara and you taste that with the cider and it blends so freaking good. And that was one of our products that was super polarizing. Some people loved it, some people didn't, but we got to put it out on the market because I was small enough that I was just playing around the whole time. I got to experiment, I got to be that artist. But then we started getting be- bigger. People want their flagships. They want something that they loved that you made to be there and be available again. So stuff like when we started making beer, people love our average Joe's American ale. And that's one of my favorite recipes that me and my former partner Pedro designed. And he and I saw that and my other partners have seen that. We've seen it in the sales. So what do we do? We have to keep making it and we can't keep making it at a small batch out of our shop. We decided to contract our latest batch of it. We went down, gypsied the batch, made 30 barrels instead of five at a time. And now we've got a crap ton of average Joe's that we got to quality assure. We got to make sure we were there on canning day, brewing day, everything else. And we did it on someone else's system to let us scale up the volume of production so that it's available for our consumers and we can get it out to distribution at a great price. And, you know, the, the economic side of it in the background aside 
it is consistent now as something that people can bank on when they sit down at this bar and they go, I love that average Joe's, give me a pint of that. And I, I have the security of mind to sit down with them and say, all right, I got you for the next six months until we make it again. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way, that's the business side, you've clearly locked down a little bit as well as the brewing side. You've spent the 10,000 hours, it sounds like, to amass and put all these things together. And I know we have to let Chris go so he pull some staples out of his hand. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll talk again. And I think we could talk on a, a longer uh, front instead of being stuck inside this little box of time here. Because we could talk an hour about the various different business components about not just brewing, but what it's like to open up a actual facility here on the retail side and going into all the hardships that you've discovered that you didn't even think were even possible, you know. Um, Nooms, hit us with that special talk. <laughs> Guys, uh, don't forget to like or smash that like and subscribe button because, you know, algorithms. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Guys, thanks for having me.